You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, you're wearing your club shirt today. You came to record the CME in a, in a collared shirt, unbuttoned about halfway down, wife beater underneath. Uh, you look like you're going out to meet Chris Weidman after this. Is that, is that, is that what's, what's going on here? You know I don't wear a shirt to the club. What's the point? Well, you show up with one on, but then first song, you take it off. Yeah, okay, that's fair. As soon as Turn Down for What comes on. Yeah, you're, but you're I would... Before swinging I, your rag over your head. Before I could wear this shirt to the club, I'd have to put it under a black light and see if that mustard stain came out. I'm not positive. Yeah, it let did. me try to paint a picture for the listeners at home. What, what color would you say that shirt is? Maybe a cornflower yellow? You know what? You won't have to paint a picture for the listeners because the reason I'm wearing this shirt is because I had to shoot a video earlier and I had to look presentable. I can't just be like you... Professional blogger Chad Dundas sitting up here in a t-shirt of your own band. True, true. Haven't shaved, and I'm going to say five days? No, way more than that. A couple weeks at least. Just so I can paint a picture of you for the listeners. That's yeah. what's going on over here. Guilty as charged. So are you going out to pick up your 8x10 glossies of your new headshots this after this? Is that what the shirt's about? You're a... Uh, as your for your career as a character actor, you having a one good of time? them is a picture of you as a cop. One of them is a picture of you as a firefighter. Is this fun? Are you having fun right now? I don't know. So we got to do some to start the show. Yeah, so. I, apparently we do, and it's got to come at my expense. You know what? When I do get my eight by ten glossies, I'm not sending you one. <laughs> well, how am I going to put one up on the wall of my Italian restaurant then? If you don't <laughs> autograph one for me, don't I write about I how good the ZD was. I, well, frankly, the ZD is awful. <laughs> Uh, three rounds, as usual, this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, assuming he didn't wander off in some Budweiser-induced stupor, never to be seen again, is it crazy to think that Donald Anthony the Cowboy Cerrone is finally coming to, into his own as a lightweight contender? And in round number two, so, the Irish like fighting, huh? I feel like I heard that somewhere before. Was it in uh, old offensive textbooks? And in round number three... July's not done with you yet, motherfucker. Now get over here and kneel before the altar of awesomeness and pray that Robbie Lawler and Matt Brown are satisfied with your meager offering. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week, Ben, comes from Michael Cunningham, who just from the sound of his name, I would have to guess, is from across the pond. Is this what we're going to start doing now? We're just going to start trying to make blanket generalizations about people based on our interpretations of their names. Saturday night in Dublin was my first time at the biggest of MMA shows, the UFC. Okay, probably he's from there. Wow, I've been all over Europe to festivals and concerts, but have never felt an energy like that. The goodwill in the building was incredible. Please tell me we've done enough for at least a show every 18 months. We're not in charge of that, but anyway. Uh, the way Dana keeps stressing our small arena size, I realize once a year is too much to expect, but I could be right in thinking, but could I be right in thinking, our effort on Saturday is enough to make you both consider coming over for the next Dublin show. Now, see, here's, here's the thing, Ben. We do want to talk about this UFC Dublin 
England card uh, and how it's been perceived in the wake of it happening. Uh, before we get into the rounds proper, and I assume in, in round number two that we'll probably spend talking mostly about Conor McGregor and what kind of dude he seems like he is. Uh, but uh, I think when we discuss this UFC Dublin card, we need to make a distinction, right? Because we talked about this before going on the air. There's two. There's a couple of different ways you can look at this yes. UFC Dublin card, uh, and it seems like we need to make that distinction before we talk about the card itself. Yeah. Well, and first of all, for the question, like, would we consider coming over to the next Dublin show? I'd have gone to this one if they'd let me. I, of course I want to go to Dublin. Yeah. Don't you want to go to Ireland? Yes. Hell yes. And in fact, I would say I want to go more now that I've seen the... The reports on the ground from the people who were, in fact, there. Yeah. Well, and see, you think I don't want to be in a club with John Morgan at three o'clock in the morning, putting up Twitter pictures of like smoke and dancers and weird stuff? I'm not gonna lie, I was a little bit worried about John when uh, you showed me that Twitter picture because you know you and I both know him pretty well. It's not exactly what you'd think of as his scene, which led led you to believe that he might have, you know wandered down some rabbit holes uh, that night and ended up there. Yeah, but um, I mean, he's a professional. Oh, he is And a I don't just mean in, about the writing and the reporting. Oh, no, he's absolutely a not. He we knows know. his way around. We were at, at Cinnabar in San Jose with John Morgan throwing back whiskeys until a, a pall came over his face and he said cryptically, I have to go now, and then disappeared, <laughs> and it was awesome. Uh, but yeah, we were talking about this... This Ireland show, because you hear all this stuff from the people who were there, uh, the people, the, the media and the, the fans and stuff who were there uh, in the building. And it sounds like it was a, an incredible experience to behold. Um, and yet most MMA fans did not get to behold it that way because that's just I mean, it's like, what, 10,000 people in the building that night. Most of us watched uh, on a laptop or a TV or something like that. Uh, where that stuff doesn't always translate. And so I know that sometimes you can come away with a very different impression when you were there live than you do watching it on the tube or the laptop. I remember when I was at the UFC's event in Sweden, in Stockholm, and you were like, in the Globe, and man, holy shit, it was a crazy night. Fans just going nuts. Uh, and stood out to me as a really memorable, uh, exciting, very different kind of UFC night. But then if you ask me to look back on you know, was that one of the greatest nights, you know, fight-wise in terms of significance or quality of the bouts we saw? I'd have to say no. It was, you know, somewhere in the middle. It wasn't right. bad by any means, but didn't didn't really stand out in that regard. Right. So we have to talk about, are we going to say, are we going to talk about this card in terms of what we saw from the fighters and the significance of the fights and the, the level of talent on display? Or do we want to talk about the live experience, which... We weren't there, so we can't really say anything about right, it. Right, yeah. I mean, you're right. I think that from a live experience standpoint, clearly Dublin fucking brought it, right? They've been waiting a while to get this show, uh, and it seemed like they really showed out. And we're probably among the best, loudest, most enthusiastic live crowds in UFC history. Uh, and that, I think, is certainly part of the experience. And you got to give them credit for that. That they, uh, And I think that Michael Cunningham is right. I thought I saw from the post-fight press conference, it seemed like the UFC is sort of uh, hinting at the fact that it'll be back in Dublin about this time next year. So, hey, man, good for you, Irish fans. Uh, that's how you do it. Um, I think you're right, though, that it is a little strange to put so much emphasis on the live experience because let's I mean, this was a fun fight card. It was a fun, especially for a fight pass show like this kind of represented, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the best of what you're going to get 
on the internet streaming service. Well, this is your uh, first fight, Pass right Card, now. right? You signed up for the free trial? I did. I signed up for the seven-day free trial, knowing that I had g- been given an assignment from my editor that I had to write something about Colin McGregor, Connor McGregor. Look, I almost said Colin McGoober. Colin right McGoober, here. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had to write something about Connor McGregor, and I saw that they had the seven-day free trial, so I thought, what the hell? Signed up for it, and uh, watch, watch the show on my television. Streamed it through my Roku, and, which and they, puts me one step ahead of you, technology-wise. Yeah, it does. Well, once they get on Apple TV, I'll be able to, to solve that problem. Now, I guess you're kind of a good test audience then, like you did, you weren't won over by the Fight Pass service with this one, which you seem to regard as being a worthwhile event to watch. Uh, I thought it was a fun fight card, but like, I guess I didn't, and like, this is where it gets into how we need to make the distinction because I didn't, I wasn't prepared for people kind of losing their damn minds in the wake of the event, making all kinds of crazy statements about how good it was. And like Kevin Ioli wrote a thing on Yahoo where he listed it number one all time for greatest UFC events. Yeah. Number two. UFC 100. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you might be getting a little carried And away. I guess watching it from my living room on Fight Pass, I just didn't get that impression. Like, clearly the live fans were off the hook, and it was a great atmosphere to be at the fights. But, like, the actual fighting portion of the card was sort of unremarkable, right? Well, like, I, it was three mismatches and a, a flyweight fight that was, uh, you know, relevant in the division, but in the end turned out to be kind of lopsided itself. So as I came away from the event, it's not like I was like, oh, my God, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, I kind of thought of it as, like, uh, kind of sort of an ordinary UFC event with mostly guys you'd never heard of before. Well, I don't know. I mean, the main card I thought was pretty solid all around. I got no complaints about the the caliber of fighting that we saw, uh, but it was, you know, as far as uh, where people were in the division and who was fighting and, and what the main event was. I mean, it was a fight night and, and a perfectly good fight night. Uh, but again, I mean, I think like, like, for instance, what I wonder is, I was at UFC 134 in Rio uh, when the UFC, uh, like the first Zufa era, uh, card in Rio where they went back there and that was nuts to be there. I mean, it was packed to the rafters before the the first fight. People just going crazy the entire time. It was very similar in the fact that all, almost all the Brazilians on the card uh won. It was almost all a card of Brazilians versus non-Brazilians and I think uh I think who who was a uh, Stanislav Nedkov uh, knocked out uh, Luis Kane, I think, to be the only, like, to make the only loss for a Brazilian on that card. You know, Noguera upset Brendan Shaw. People were throwing beers. It was nuts. It was a crazy live experience to be at. Um, but then you look at, like, when the UFC goes to Brazil now, they go there so often that you don't see that level of enthusiasm for every single card in Brazil. It makes me wonder, you know, if you got what you wanted, uh, Michael Cunningham, if the UFC came there, you know, once a year or even more than once a year, uh, would you'd be able to sustain that level of enthusiasm. That's always what I wonder because it's all, it is, you know, fun to see a new market where the people there are huge UFC fans, huge MMA fans, haven't had a chance to see a big show. And then one shows up and everybody's dying to get in there. The same as it was in Sweden where people were paying three times market value for their tickets. Uh, but then you just wonder like, okay, does that wear off when the novelty wears off? Once you've seen it a couple times before, are you still getting geeked up to go over there? Or are you wondering, Hey, why don't we get John Jones? Yeah. And you know what? We talk so much about kind of the drawbacks of this, of the UFC schedule and having so many shows. I do feel like it's only fair of us to take a moment, uh, and recognize how awesome July has been yeah. from a UFC perspective. Like, uh, and still not over yet because we got Lawler versus Brown this, this, uh, coming up this Saturday. Uh, so like this seems like a month where, uh, the, the, the menu of events and the schedule has really worked out really well. We've had, uh, 
three or four really, really awesome events this month, which I think you got to say kudos to the, uh, to the, the fight company itself for, uh, for having an awesome, July. It would also lead me to openly speculate. People say UFC Fight Night 46 was the greatest UFC event of all time. I don't even think it was the greatest UFC event of this month. Like, you had UFC 175 the first week of the month with Chris Chris Weidman, Lyoto Machida in a fight of the year candidate fight. You had Ronda Rousey knock out Alexis Davis in a fight that was one second away from being the fastest title defense in UFC history. You had Uriah Hall out there limping around on a broken goddamn toe. It was like that. And still still taking the uh, the uh, uh, the unanimous decision victory off Tiago Santos. So, like, I don't know, man. UFC Fight Night 46 seemed nice, but, like, to me, it was kind of cast in a supporting role here in July with all of the other awesome fight cards. Yeah, no, seen. you're right. Tough to stand out in July. There's a lot of great fights and still at least one more awesome one probably still to come. All right, next uh, piece of listener mail this week comes from Tony Palilic. He writes, the, this question is just to make sure you guys spend a decent amount of time talking about Chad's guy, Gunny Nelson. After a hellacious performance and an awe-inspiring submission, do you guys really think that Rory the Bory McDonald... Wow! Ooh, shots fired by Ouch. Tony Palilic. Is the next logical step for him? It seems like a bit too much, too fast for old Gunny. How about a grappler's feast with Damian Maya? Or test how fast Nelson can lift his low-hanging fist to defend against a Hector Lombard, defend against Hector Lombard's bombs. Oh God, please discuss. Uh, so yeah, Gunnar Nelson comes out, UFC Fight Night 46, uh, uh, and you know, d- does what, does what he was supposed to do against Zach Cummings, uh, you know, the thing about Gunnar Nelson goes out there with his like kind of karate stance looking a lot like Lyoto Machida, yeah. but almost like a less urgent Lyoto Machida, especially less urgent in the first round. Although let's give him credit where credit is due. He lost that first round then came out in the second. Uh, I don't know if he was feeling a sense of urgency because it's impossible to know if <laughs> Gunnar Nelson feels human emotion. But uh, once he got Zach Cummings on the ground and was able to take the back, I think that's the point when you start to think, think, you know, you start to see like, wow, this this is what this kid is capable of and, you know, gets on his back really nice, locks up the rear naked choke and uh, locks up that kind of rear naked choke that had Zach Cummings doing the, okay, I'm going to tap here in a second, yeah. like putting that hand up there. I will wait until an appropriate interval has passed uh, so that I am not accused of any bitch assness and then I will tap. But I'm already getting my hand ready because I don't want it to get trapped in a bad spot where I can't tap in time. At the same time, though, Gunnar Nelson came into this fight as a pretty big favorite, right? Uh, I don't know exactly what the odds were in this one, but I think it was at least comparable to what uh, Conor McGregor had in the main event where he's, he opened as a 4-1 to favorite and closed as like a 6 or 7-1 to favorite. Uh, no one really expected Zach Cummings to come out and blow Gunnar Nelson's doors off. So, yeah, great win. The dude advances to 13-0. and But it's still sort of a situation where we're waiting to find out exactly how good Gunnar Nelson is. And I don't know. I might agree with the emailer. It seems like Rory McDonald would be biting off an awful lot to chew, uh, especially in a in a uh, welterweight division that has no, you know, there's no lacking of guys there around that Gunnar Nelson could potentially fight. Yeah, but at the same time, I... I don't really subscribe to the idea that, like, hey, we got to bring him along slow. Like, that was his fourth fight in the UFC. It's time. It's time to fight somebody tougher. I mean, right now, you, you look at uh, his his last four fights, 
And you see impressive performances and all that good stuff that gets you excited about the guy, but it's still all against kind of the same level of fighter. Like it's not really like he's we haven't seen him get tested yet. I think that time has come. I don't know how much slower you want to bring the guy along at this point. You know, I mean, if if Conor McGregor is the main event in his third fight, then I don't see why uh, old old Gunny Nelson can't jump up there and fight somebody tougher. I wouldn't complain about seeing him though against Lombard. I wouldn't complain about seeing him against uh, Rory the Bory. You know. However you want to play that, or even Demian Maia. I mean, sure, like, you know, you always have the risk of when you put two guys who do something well up against each other that they'll just stalemate one another. Uh, but, you know, I, I'd be interested in any of that. But definitely he needs to see a significant jump up in competition at this point if we're going to maintain this level of enthusiasm about him. Yeah, and Roy Donald is the number two or number three contender in that division. So you put him, you put him against that guy, you're sort of hot-shotting him. Like, there's nowhere to go after that except, you know, title shot or you lose the fight. I think I would like to see him just uh, against someone of a more... Uh, you know, middling top 10, top 12, like sort of a, like Jake Ellenberger, Hector Lombard, Damian Maya, Kelvin Gastelum sort of fellow. I mean, I feel like style wise, Hector Lombard is probably a tougher fight for him than McDonald is just because I feel like if you stand there, you know, with, as, uh, Tony Pulik mentions, you know, your kind of lackluster attitude toward defending your face against a guy like Lombard, you know, he might bomb on you. Uh, and if you, can't get that guy to the mat where you want him because, you know, he's he's going to be pretty good in that regard, too, then you could have some problems. I mean, I think Roy McDonald's a little easier to get down uh, where you want him. But, you know, any of those fights uh, that we mentioned, I'd be all for it, but it needs to be somebody for real. Like, we can't do the thing of, of just, like, saying that he needs more time to develop. He's in there. Four fights in the UFC is plenty of time at this point. Like, if you're going to do something, let's do it. Yeah, and maybe have him fight in America. You know, he's never fought over here, never fought anywhere but in, in or, uh, Europe. Uh, so it'd be nice to see him deal with the travel, kind of get into a situation that's more uh, more taxing from like a professional fighter standpoint, having to deal with like the, the jet lag and right. coming over and like having to acclimate, deal with your weight cut. I don't know how much weight he cuts at 170 pounds anyway, but uh, plus, don't you just want to see his like the his reaction to Las Vegas or something like that could be its own fight pass show. Right. Gunny, plus, Gunny plus, I'd like to Vegas. see him pass a Quaaludes test, you know? <laughs> yeah, I get Surprise you. random Quaaludes test. Now, a third uh, piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Mike Morgan. He writes, following last week's edition of the CME, the UFC announced that flyweight champion Demetrius Johnson would put his title on the line against dot, 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 Chris Carriasso. Are you fucking kidding me? I guess going three and five in your last five fights with losses to the only to only two top 10 opponents you face for Misha and Moraga is good enough in the flyweight division. Did Sean Shelby eat some tainted corn nuts? Please explain uh, this. We, we talked about this in the breakfast of champions newsletter, which comes out on Friday mornings, by the way, and it's fantastic. Uh, but it is, this is a weird booking and it seemed the timing of it was weird. It seemed like almost panicked in a way to try to get that second title fight on uh, UFC 177 underneath the TJ uh, Dillashaw, Hannon Barrow, Banta, weight title fight because i guess you put two two belts on the poster you sell twice as many pay-per-views i think that's how the yeah, equation the works yeah, definitely but like it was a weird it was weird timing because you had john lineker uh in a in a pretty serious test coming up a couple days later that uh if he passed and he did you'd think 
plus made weight could potentially make him uh, uh, a number one contender in flyweight. And then you had uh, Ian McCall against Brad Pickett at the UFC Fight Night 46 Dublin show, which uh, especially if Brad Pickett would have won that, it would have set up an interesting fight with Demetrius Johnson because Pickett already beat him once at bantamweight, and he's a guy that Johnson hasn't fought at 125 pounds. Instead, Ian McCall beats uh, uh, Brad Pickett, and so you would, I guess, set up a third fight between Demetrius Johnson and Ian McCall. But to be honest with you, I would like that better, wouldn't you, than Chris Cariasso, like uh, DJ versus Uncle Creepy 3? Yeah, well, and I mean, this one, I think that uh, we talked about before, the problem with it is it seems like they decided, okay, we need another title fight. Who can we get? Who can we get where we won't be sacrificing pay-per-view buys down the road because people aren't buying his pay-per-views anyway. Okay, well, Demetrius Johnson. And who's he going to fight? Well, he's kind of cleaned out the top of the division or you know, the guys he hasn't cleaned out. Uh, you know, you got John Dodson. He's hurt. Can't really do that. So I don't know who, who can go. Who can go right now? Who doesn't have a fight booked? Uh, or, you know, who, who can we get that'll just say yes to the opportunity because it's the best thing they got going on. And then we can say we got two title fights. So it's like you created the need for a title fight before you thought about what the title fight was going to be, which is kind of not how it's supposed to work. It should be a situation where you have a champion, you have a challenger who makes sense, and then you figure out where and when you want them to fight. And this is the complete opposite thing. And as Dana White was saying in one of his scrum uh, interviews this weekend, uh, you know, it wasn't like Demetrius Johnson was saying, hey, put me back in there. I'm getting tired of sitting around waiting for somebody. Uh, Dana White said, we asked him. We wanted to make that card stronger. So we asked him to, to uh, come in here and, and defend his title again. Uh, and then you just kind of chose somebody, whoever you could find, whoever was convenient to have him fight against, which I mean. That just seems like not the way you're supposed to be putting those things together. And as you said, there were plenty of opportunities if you wanted to wait and see how things shook out to see who would make the most sense. Um, but none of those guys would be able to do that quick turnaround. So it's like a matchmaking of necessity, but the necessity is of your own creation. That's what I don't like about it. Right. And not to mention, I have one a fight I forgot to mention. Juicy De Silva and uh, Zach Makovsky is next month. That fight was supposed to be at UFC 176, but they, then they bumped it to that fight night, which is headlined by Ryan Bader versus Ovin St. Preux. The fight we've all been clamoring for for months uh so you know yeah that's another flyway tie a fight that could produce a, a number one contender but it's almost like a perfect storm of shittiness for demetrius johnson at this point like yeah. he's super dominant in a really kind of shallow division the guy he was supposed to fight got injured and the ufc really really wants to find warm bodies to stock all of these events that it has coming up so your end result demetrius johnson against chris Carriasso. uh I keep saying it, but like, I feel like eventually if the UFC is going to keep kind of messing around like this, eventually one of their champions is going to lose his title to a guy like Chris Carriasso, who then we're all like, really? Like this guy's a flyweight champ. And then we get stuck in a, a holding pattern because then you know what they do. They got to do the rematch. Got to do it again, brother. Well, or probably more likely scenario is you put one of your champs in here against this fight thinking, well, it's just something to do for now. Uh, and then he can have the, a real title defense later. And he goes out there and blows out his knee or something. And he's right. out for a year. I mean, we saw like Look at when John Jones had that completely meaningless fight against Chel Sonnen. And yeah, he ran through him and damn near tore his toe off. Or Ronda Rousey uh, busting her hand open. You know, for, for, fortunately, that one doesn't seem like it's going to be too serious. But obviously, in MMA, you can get hurt even blowing the other guy out of the water. So th it's not without a risk. It's not like you can just do this stuff, uh, you know, just to kill some time. Like, Bad stuff could happen that could completely mess with your whole division and you would have done it for no good reason. 
Last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from David Nightingale. He writes, since the UFC last year started to water down their product, it seems that there have been only a few newer fighters making a big name for themselves inside the promotion. Apart from maybe Conor McGregor, few new fighters are making a real impact to the fans and pay-per-view sales. And it seems that the biggest thing for fans to hope for is the debut of Holly Holm or the signing of someone like Emmanuel Newton or Eddie Alvarez. Uh, do you think that the new climate of 10 UFC shows per week is encouraging fighters to make a name for themselves outside the UFC and hope for a main card signing instead of uh, having through seven fight pass opponents to get even the hardcore fans to recognize their name or will the favorable place for newcomers still be beneath the UFC banner? Please discuss. Thank you. Uh, I do think that this is kind of a problem, and it's one that I feel like is a little bit counterintuitive because you would think more fight shows, more fighters on the roster, you would uh, have a lot better opportunity for a wider array of guys and women at this point to come in and make a name from themselves for themselves in the UFC. But I feel like having all these shows, one of the things that it does, it disrupts the schedule so much that, like, uh, especially from a coverage standpoint, like you pretty much have to go in write whatever you're going to write about like the main event or the co-main. And then the next day you're moving on to talk about the, the fight that's on Wednesday or the fight that's on Saturday. Whereas in the past, if you had a couple of weeks between events, man, you could just dissect the whole damn thing. And you could write about some up and coming guy who fought on the prelims or fought in the first pay-per-view card and he would get a higher profile, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like not only because of that, but just because of the, like the sheer number of events like this, it, it, cre- it has created an environment where it is kind of hard for people to get noticed. And the way that more often than not, I think people are getting noticed now is this Conor McGregor style of getting noticed where you kind of take a page out of the Chael Sonnen handbook a little bit and, and just, uh, you know, go full uh, uh, gift of gab on well, it. You know, but I think that there's something to be said for that because obviously that works. And I think that some of the difficulty in getting noticed has to be that you got to place the blame on some of the fighters for that. Because like you said, they should realize what a, a crowded landscape it is right now and how, you know, everybody is having to turn their focus right from the last event to the next event pretty much immediately. So you got to do something with the time that you have. And that only not only means like, you know, putting on an impressive performance, but then if you're lucky enough to, to have John Anik or somebody stick the microphone in your face, uh, you know, don't just tell us you'll do whatever the UFC wants and, you know, you're not going to call anybody out because that's not your style and you're just going to wait around and see what happens and good Lord willing, whatever. Uh, I mean, when you have those opportunities, you have to do something with them. And a lot of fighters seem to not totally realize that, that this is the entertainment business as much as it is about sports. I mean, once you handle the sports aspect of it, then you need to give people a reason to remember you. I mean, that's like if you look at Conor McGregor, like that guy has some sort of just natural uh, magnetism to him that where everybody wants to see what he's going to do, hear what he's going to say. I mean... We, we get into it. We, we love it. You know, it, it's the same for us as it is for anyone else. So, like, by the time he actually gets in there and fights, it almost feels secondary. Okay, yeah, he's going to go in there and do his thing and put a beat down on the guy, but that part seemed almost, like, predetermined. Right. I hear you. Not everyone can do that, though, right? Like, I think that we would be in agreement in saying that if you had a mixed martial arts landscape where everyone tried to act like Conor McGregor or Chael Sonnen, it would get pretty insufferable yeah, pretty fast. that would. And you would also see a lot of... uh embarrassing displays i think uh i feel like you're right though that just in the in the 
post-fight interview setting, guys need to be a little bit more assertive and, and uh, you know, talk about other guys that they want to fight and, and climb the ladder and stuff like that. I just hearken back to a guy like George St. Pierre, uh, who obviously came up through the UFC during a different time. There were fewer shows. There were fewer guys. Uh, and he, he was better than everybody. He was better than everybody. That every, helps. Right. He was better than everybody. But at the same time, like you were able to get a handle on this guy as a person who you knew was going to be the champion by the time he got around to what his rematch, right? Against, uh, against Matt Hughes. Uh, you knew that he was going to be the champion and you had been watched. You'd watched all of his fights. You tracked his career. Like, I don't know that that is happening for a lot of dudes at this point. Yeah, and that's that's possible. And I also think that it's, like we've talked before, it's a tough deal for you if you're one of the guys fighting on the prelims of, like, a fight pass card or something. And, you know, you look at this one, there were some pretty decent fighters on there on the prelims of this card, not even on the main card, uh, just for, like, regional purposes, ended up fighting there on the prelims. And a lot of people are probably going to skip those. I mean, even the people, like, you already got to take the super hardcore audience that has Fight Pass and that is willing to, to sign up for stuff like that. And then cut from there down to the people who are hardcore enough that they're going to watch the entire card. I mean, this one, I didn't have to work that day, so I didn't watch the whole card. I just made sure I could have my laptop open in time for the main card. And then, all right, I'll wait and I'll, I'll hear what other fights are worth going back in there and watch. And so, like, it just adds one more barrier uh, for you to get noticed. I mean, it's it's a tough situation out there, but the fighters have to adjust because obviously the UFC isn't going to change what it does. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast for future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you could sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to fill you in on all of the MMA news and notes that we miss from Monday to Friday. Uh, it's a good time. You'll like it. So so sign up for that. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, it seems almost like ancient history at this point that last Wednesday, Donald Cerrone went out and knocked out Jim Miller uh, in Atlantic City in the second round of their main event fight and then talked about how many Budweiser's he was excited about drinking and swaggered out of the cage wearing his 10-gallon hat and uh, came to the press conference with said long neck bottle in tow. Uh, at this point, Donald Cerrone, he's got another, I believe, four-fight win streak going, his longest since uh, he started his UFC career on a tear that nobody saw coming. Uh, but this this one feels kind of bigger to me. It feels like against slightly better competition. And uh, when I look at Donald Cerrone in the cage, despite all the beer drinking and uh, and middle fingers, as Steve Austin would say, uh, even though Donald Cerrone doesn't really do the middle fingers. He will. He will if you do it to him first. Oh, that's true. Uh, but, you know, d despite all that stuff, like I look at this Jim Miller fight and I thought I saw a really kind of mature and patient performance from Donald Cerrone. Is it crazy to think that he is coming into his own just now as a 155 pound contender? 
I don't think that's crazy. And I think it also makes me wonder, you know, look back at it, his career and say, okay, well, where the, the parts where he stumbled, what exactly was going on there? Maybe we didn't understand it quite as well as we thought we did. I mean, I think that you see him in fights like the, his most recent loss, a decision to Rafael Dos Anjos, where it seemed like maybe he just allowed himself to become a little too predictable. Uh, and it seemed like he was kind of the opposite uh, with Jim Miller. I mean, he, he was adapting on the fly really well. Uh, reading what was going on and, and adjusting accordingly. Um, or the times like where he's lost in eight Diaz, where at least I know Greg Jackson will say that it was a result of him trying to fight 18 times in one calendar year, uh, just in an effort to stack that paper. And that eventually you run, you run empty, whether it's your body getting beat up or just the adrenaline tank kind of runs dry after so many ups and downs in such a short amount of time. But I know he's talked kind of openly about struggling at times with the mental game. Uh, and that seems to be why he prefers to fight so often is because it gives him less time to sit around and think about it in between fights. Uh, but I think that if he could get those two aspects synced up, you know, the, the physical stuff and the mental stuff, the guy we saw in there against Jim Miller, I mean, if you put him in a rematch with Anthony Pettis, I think that that could be a problem for Anthony Pettis, for pretty Tony. Yeah, you you bring up that Nate Diaz loss, and you're right to say that that was Cowboy Cerrone's fifth fight of 2011, so that will wear on you. Uh, that was also a fight where I always say this, uh, and the, uh, the Diaz fans always get mad at me. I'm really not trying to take anything away from Nate Diaz, who won the fight and looked great doing it, but, like, I really felt all, you know, watching that fight, like, Donald Cerrone let the trash talk of that fight kind of get in his head. And he said that, yeah. He's kind of an emotional guy, and he came out of his corner and pretty much, like, threw himself into the the teeth of Nate Diaz's striking attack and got hit really, really hard early on, and it seemed like he never really recovered from that. I think you can cast that in fairly stark uh, contradiction to what we saw in the Jim Miller fight, where he probably lost the first round uh, and was getting touched up a little bit by Jim Miller, uh, but was able to kind of keep his composure uh, stay patient and finally like his more uh, tactical better striking game ended up winning the day and that's the kind of thing that uh, you know when I look at Donald Cerrone I think like okay well here's a guy who's kind of coming into his own uh, I feel like it's kind of shocking both about Donald Cerrone and Jim Miller to realize that as long as these dudes have been in the UFC and as many fights as they have like Donald Cerrone is only 31 and Jim Miller doesn't even turn 31, I don't think, till next month. So it's like both these guys still have, uh, you know, some tread left on the tires. Clearly, like Donald Cerrone likes to run pretty hard in terms of like the number of fights that he wants to have per year. Yeah, but he like, might go through tread a little quicker than most people. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's also not like he's, he's athletically like right at the end. You know, he should have a couple few years left where he's able to be very, very good. So, um, you know, I think that that's encouraging for him to go, to have a performance like this where it seems like he put it all together uh, and was able to to have this big win. Kind of a bummer that on, on the immediate heels of this, we heard he was booked to fight Nurmi, Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, in, in a fight that I think probably would have been a barn burner and would have been, you know, one for that to, to set up a potential future number one contender for whenever Anthony Pettis and Gilbert Melendez get done with their protracted business. Uh, and then 20 minutes after it gets announced, Nermi blows out his knee in training and the fight is off. So that was kind of a bummer, but you know, good, good stuff. I think in the future of, of Donald Cerrone, that is a bummer for him, but it also made me wonder if maybe. 
that could be the MMA gods looking out for old clown boy Cerrone. Uh, because that would be kind of a tough matchup. Yeah, it is. Like style wise, that's a really tough one for him. This way, he gets like the best of all possible worlds. He gets the attaboy points for stepping up and saying, yeah, sure, I'll fight that nermy dude you're also scared of, you bunch of pussies. Uh, but then he doesn't have to actually do it. And it's not his fault at all. You can't blame him for anything in that. So he still gets to look like the badass who will fight anybody in any time uh, and yet doesn't have to actually fight anybody in any time, which I think is what we're all after, right? Uh, so, I mean, I don't know what they'll, they'll find for him now, but it is a kind of thing where you look at like this last performance uh, and you know just the, the run he's been on recently. I don't even know if he necessarily needs to do too much more. He just kind of needs the timing to work out uh, in order to talk about a lightweight title shot. Yeah, timing is going to be the thing for almost everybody in this lightweight division as we wait for Anthony Pettis to get healthy and, and go through this upcoming season of the ultimate fighter that he has against Gilbert Melendez. Let's talk a little bit about Jim Miller here because he obviously was a guy uh, who had sort of been on a roll if you discount that loss to Pat Healy last April that got overturned uh, because Healy tested positive for uh, the lettuce of death. Uh, but uh, what do you see for Jim Miller here? Like... I don't, you know, I'm kind of talking out of turn. I don't know if this is possible, but I, I, when I see Jim Miller in there kind of getting towered over by Donald Cerrone, I start to wonder if Jim Miller could make featherweight. And like, we talked about this last night at a barbecue that we were both at, like cutting down to the lighter weight class is very seldom the answer, right? It very seldom cures everything that ails you. But I feel like the state of the featherweight division right now kind of, uh, it's on the rise. There's a lot of intriguing contenders down there. I feel like if Jim Miller could make 145, it might be kind of, uh, you know, give him a do over, kind of a rebirth of sorts. I don't know. I mean, it's always easy to, to think that before you actually see him go do it. And then, like we saw with uh, Brad Pickett and Ian McCall uh, this week, I feel like sometimes guys don't uh, take into account that those dudes in the lower weight class are faster than you are. Uh, and you think that, all right, I'm going to go down there and I'm not going to lose much strength or anything and I'm just going to ragdoll these fools. And then you get down there and you can't even put your hands on them. Uh, I think that that happens a lot to guys. So uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer. I mean... I guess you're right, though, that if you think that the the only other option is kind of hanging around and being a really tough gatekeeper level kind of fighter, but that might be where uh, where where Jim Miller is at this point. And I mean, I still always want to see that dude fight. He's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. A really creative uh, grappler. Uh, will really go after you on the feet. I, you know. Whatever they decide to do with Jim Miller, I think that uh, these fight night kind of cards and their the proliferation thereof is kind of good news for Jim Miller because he's exactly the kind of dude you can throw on these. Yeah, and he seems like a dude who's always going to have a job because he's well-liked. You know, he's an exciting guy, and he's the kind of guy that, like, will beat everyone except the guys who are really – really, really good. And, and I guess gonna... the occasional slip up to Pat Healy in there. But like, uh, it's certainly not the end of the road for him and maybe not time to hit the panic button. I'm just speculating about, uh, uh, you know, all of the stuff that's going on at featherweight now. There's, there's so many guys down there. It seemed like he could, if he could make it and he, he wouldn't, you know, sacrifice too much of his cardio and whatnot that, that, uh, he might have some interesting opportunities down there. But you're, that, I mean, now that you say that, now I'm thinking about what what would happen if James Andrew Miller cuts down to 145 and takes on Colin McGoober. 
Now there's a fight, Chad Dundas. Well, there are a lot of guys out there who I think are going to be looking to get in the Conor McGregor sweepstakes, right. so to speak. Uh, but I mean, you just look at the featherweight top ten. You know, obviously guys like Chad Mendez, Frankie Edgar, Cub Swanson, Ricardo Lamas, Dustin Poirier, Clay Guida, Nick Lentz, uh, uh, Conor McGregor, Jeremy Stevens. You look at that list; it's hard to find a fight on there where you'd be like, "Oh, I wouldn't watch it if that guy fought Jim Miller." Like That's if, true. If Jeremy Stevens fought Jim Miller, if Cub Swanson fought Jim Miller, there's no way I would watch that. I think every oh, single geez. one of those fights you watch, you you read those off, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Let me cancel yes. my plans because, and I want to be there for the walkouts because you know Jim Miller is going to come out there to long, cool woman in a black dress, wearing a damn tank top and a ball cap, a camouflage ball cap, clearly uh, with his farmer's tan, still going strong. Yeah, I'm into it. Book it. All right, Ben. Well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two this week. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? for episode lucky number 113 of the Co-Main Event Podcast? Well, Chad, I don't know if you've noticed what Bellator has been up to well, lately. I've been noticing. Don't look now, but the Bellator roster currently includes Bobby Lashley, Philip the Poet Baroni, Caro Parisian, Paul Daly, and Melvin Manhoff, just to name a few. Are you fucking kidding me? It's kind of an awesome rogues gallery over there. It's just like the, the all-stars of the crazy MMA washouts. Oh, I am digging it. Are you fucking kidding me, Bellator? Are you fucking kidding me? You're trying to work your way into my heart over there, Scott Coker. I'm digging it too. It, it kind of, it, it really does have a, like, get the band back together feel <laughs> over right. there. Like, Scott Coker is, is thinking back to his crazy old strike force days and being like, oh man, what's wild ass Paul Daly doing? Let's call him up and <laughs> see what he's up to. Yeah, and they walk in there and Carl Parisian was, you know, mopping floors at like a high school gymnasium and he's telling them, I don't know, guys. I don't know if I have it in me anymore. And then, you know, Rich Chow had to show up and give him an inspirational speech. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Well, Ben, uh, I know that you know that the New Yorker magazine recently unlocked its archives for the summer, uh, which caused us both to become aware of a profile that the magazine did on one Rhonda Jean Rousey a month or so ago. Uh, and... Lo and behold, much to my surprise, our old employer, Cage Potato MMA, cagepotato.com, gets quoted in the damn New Yorker. Cage Potato, are you fucking kidding me? Not only that, but later in the same day, Slate puts out an article also about one, Rhonda Jean Rousey, and doesn't quote Cage Potato, but fucking links to one of their articles. Are you fucking kidding me? Cage Potato finally getting the credit it deserves as a seminal primary source in the mixed martial arts world. Irreverent MMA blog, Cage Potato. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? That was not happening when we worked there. No. Well, I don't think that we deserve any blame for that. How dare you? Or, How any, dare you or so? any of the credit, really. How did we not notice this New Yorker thing on Ronda Rousey? We're both New Yorker subscribers. I don't know. I was probably because of that stack of unread New Yorkers I got underneath in the cubby of my of my coffee table. See, this is why you get the iPad-only subscription, dog. Oh. Just yeah. cue, cue that up. I guess maybe uh, when you're sitting there reading like long think pieces about Ted Cruz, you d- it doesn't even occur to you to look and see if they have an article about Ronda Rousey. Yeah, more, you would probably, you're probably just flipping through and you see pictures of Ronda Rousey. It doesn't even register in your brain because it's just like everyday stuff. You just go right by it. Also, uh, in this week's New Yorker, you know uh, who the author of the short fiction is? Who? A fellow named Greg Jackson. Oh, wow. What's going on? What's really going on, Greg What's Jackson? What's really going on indeed? He has more spare time than he's letting on. Well, that's going to do it for round number one of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, Conor McGregor once told me that he could sell out the O2 Arena in Dublin if you put him on the card by himself shadow boxing. At the time, I thought it was amusing hyperbole. And then I saw the reaction to the man fighting Diego Brandao in the main event of UFC Fight Night 46, and I started to wonder, maybe he's right? That dude is popular in Ireland, man. Yes, he is. And at this point, man, I think that it's more than clear that Conor McGregor has it, whatever that is, whatever you want to classify as this sort of uh, effervescent star quality that, that people can have this kind of like magnetism that is a thing that, that you can't really put your finger on. And like we said earlier in the show, not everyone can do it, but this dude has it, especially now that he's got his look down where he shows up looking like the white member of a nineties R and B group to do his interviews <laughs> with Ariel Hawani wearing just a vest and shirt sleeves and a tie and some Ray-Ban mirror shades. Uh, he, you know, as long as it turns out that he is a pretty good fighter, it seems like he is going to have a job in this business for as long as he wants one. And uh, it's that last part, though, that I think is still a little bit up in the air. Well, I don't think that there's a question that he's a good fighter. I think the question is, is he a good enough fighter to justify the hype train that has already run wild all over the place. So that's the part we don't know yet. And, you know, as much as the UFC kind of wanted to pump up Diego Brandao uh, for this fight to make it look like, okay, it's going to be a huge deal when he goes out there and beats him. I mean, like you said, you can look at the betting odds for that one and tell that this was a fight that he was supposed to win. He was supposed to go out there and do that. I mean, style-wise, Brandao is a guy who plays right into your hands if you're Conor McGregor. He does exactly what you could want him to do uh, and not a whole lot else. So, uh, kind of a tailor-made fight for him there. I mean, to the UFC's credit, it wasn't the plan. You know, the plan was uh, Cole Miller, which I think is a style-wise a way tougher fight, a way more interesting one. That was one I was really looking forward to because I felt like that's going to start to tell us whether uh, Conor McGregor is the real deal as a fighter as well as just as a public figure. Uh, you know, and Cole Miller got hurt. Can't blame Conor McGregor or the UFC for that one. They had to go find somebody. Uh, Diego Brando, you know, not a terrible replacement. Still doesn't tell us exactly what I think that we need to know about the guy, though, yet. Because uh, I think it is a question not just of, like, is he good? Sure, he's good. But is, is he that guy that he's been made out to be? And that's why you see so many people jumping up and down right now wanting to be the next one to try and find out. Right. I keep imagining, dude, I keep imagining an aged Frankie Edgar sitting at his house in his rocking chair with the TV on, reading the newspaper, and he starts to hear Conor McGregor going on and on, and he just kind of flips down his newspaper and looks over the top of his eyeglasses at the TV, and then just like slowly shakes his head, goes back to reading his paper. <laughs> There's got to be so many dudes in the featherweight division, you know, Frankie Edgar, Chad Mendez, just to name a couple, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, wrestlers, uh, who at this point would be lining up to get themselves a piece of Conor McGregor because what Conor McGregor wants you to do in your fight is come out and go right at his face and try to hit him with big hillbilly haymakers. Come at me, bro. That's so he, what he wants. So that he can bounce around you in his weird Gunnar Nelson karate stance and uh, hit you with those upper uppercuts and fire off those pretty punching and kicking combinations that he has. Uh, you know, before this fight, 
I, I spent some time one morning watching the last five of Conor McGregor's fights. So his two UFC fights and then his last three Cage Warriors fights uh, before he, he made the jump to the big show. I'm not sure that I saw him defend what I would describe as a quality double leg takedown in any of those fights. Uh, he got taken down a couple of times in his Cage Warriors fights uh, by the, in what I would describe as desperation dives by opponents who had already been hurt in the stand-up game. Obviously, Diego Brandao, the first guy in the octagon to even try to take him down, but did it with kind of a body lock takedown and tried to do a throw that McGregor, to his credit, reversed and uh, ended up on top. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take a wait-and-see approach, though, until I see Conor McGregor get in there with uh, a guy who is not just going to do exactly what he wants and is going to kind of push the pace and uh, do, you know, push him up against the cage and, and try to take him down, uh, you know, wrestling style over and over again. Because that, I mean, we've seen guys, we've seen a lot of guys come into the UFC and win three fights. Everyone starts to think they're a real big deal. And then it turns out, oh, wait a second, they've got this kind of like crippling uh, uh, hole in their in their armor. Yeah, and you got to be thinking that right now, you know, you can imagine some conversation where Clay Guida is like, uh, hey guys, I'd, I'd fight this Conor McGregor, and uh, the UFC tells him, we know you would. You stay away from Conor McGregor, Okay, Clay. see, I think... You leave him alone. Yes, I think you just brought up a really interesting point, and that is, if you're the UFC, what do you do with Conor McGregor? Because... Like, if you're the guy who's running the business, obviously, as, as got people who, uh, who are analysts in the sport and fans who want to see the best fight the best, we want to see Conor McGregor get a test. But if you're the guy who's running the sport and Conor McGregor is selling out the O2 arena in three minutes and he, he's beating up capital letter opponents, uh, who come in there, uh, is that good enough? Do you want to just see him do that? for like three or four more fights or do you like bring him over to Vegas like Dana White said they were probably going to do and do you pop him in there with a guy who's going to be able to test his skills like a Dustin Poirier who who was already lobbying for the fight or the winner of like Clay Guida, Dennis Bermudez, something like that. You know, I think that uh, when you look at the UFC's original booking for this one, it makes you think that they're inclined to throw him in there and kind of let the chips fall where they may, which is what you should do. I think it's a bad look for the UFC and one that it's been experimenting with a little more recently uh, to be kind of seen as in the business of one fighter in these fights and not the other. I mean, you hear like the way Dana White talks about Ronda Rousey and it's pretty clear how he sees, you know, the women's division, uh, the women's 135 division right now that, you know, he's in the, the Ronda Rousey business uh, before anything else. And similar things seem to be happening here with the Conor McGregor stuff. I mean, they sent out an email blast before this fight that just said Conor McGregor is live on Fight Pass on Saturday. You know, not like Conor McGregor versus Diego Brandau. Like, it's pretty clear uh, where your interests are and, and what basket you shoved all of your eggs into. So you want to kind of be a little careful about that because, like you said, you know, anything can happen. Anybody can get beat. And you just don't want to be seen as, like, you're promoting this one guy rather than, you know, you're promoting this fight. But I think that there's reason to think, based on what, how the UFC has handled that stuff in the past and, and how it was willing to handle it here with the original booking, that, that will do that. That it will, you know, a guy like Dustin Poirier, that seems like an interesting fight, an interesting test, uh, a good matchup, and also not the kind where if he does get beat, you don't think that it's going to be via suffocation for three rounds, that it's not going to be him just getting taken down against the fence over and over again, that it will be an exciting fight either way. And either way, you get you know some pop out of somebody that you can then turn around and promote as a t potential title contender. You know, I, I think that's a really reasonable kind of fight. If they put him up against somebody like Clay Guida, I'd be surprised. Let's just say that. 
Yeah. What is the tattoo? The chest tattoo? Is that a, a gorilla or a bear? What, what's going on with the, the Conor McGregor chest tattoo? You it's me, like, new. It wasn't there. It's, no, it wasn't, it wasn't on there. It wasn't on uh, the, the fight poster kind of pictures and everything. You know, you get, you take some time off with injury. You might as well get a tattoo. You can't train. I guess once you start making that UFC money, the first thing you do is go out and get a giant gorilla tattooed across your chest. Maybe a griffin? Could it be you a griffin? You think it's a griffin? I don't know. Why, yeah, I don't even know that like I know I, what Like I gr- did it. <laughs> I don't even know that I know what a griffin is. What's you, a gr- what is, you know what a griffin is. have a bird is. head or something? Yeah, some kind of like bird lion thing that guards golden eggs or some shit. Well, it doesn't have a bird head. I'm pretty sure about that. Get the fuck out of here. Well, you know what? Well, I guess I bet we'll get to the bottom of this. Someone will email us and let us know what the uh, Conor McGregor tattoo of the, the new chest tattoo is anything else you want to say about conor mcgregor did we exhaust this this topic uh he seems like a guy that uh if he turns out he's really really good at fighting might be the first like really huge crossover star at featherweight i'm just saying let's let's make sure he's really really good at fighting then we'll t- then we'll talk yeah no i mean and that is the i kind of wrote about this and i call him after the event is that that's the good thing about this sport is that even if you were trying to protect him, and again, I don't really see a whole lot of science that the UFC is doing that matchmaking-wise, but even if you were, you can only do that for so long. Eventually, the the truth catches up to you. Ask Kimbo motherfucking Slice. I mean, you, you can only uh, build around hype for so long before you get exposed, especially when you got so many guys out there realizing, oh, so what do I got to do to be a star is to get myself into a fight with that guy. Uh, you know, you get a lot of people who aren't characteristically the types who jump up there and call people out and ask for those kind of fights who are doing just that because they see the potential. And I think that's good for everybody. Yeah. And there's just so many ways in this sport to get beat in order like to have a hole in your game. You know, right. you don't even necessarily have to be all hype. You can be a pretty goddamn good fighter like uh, Mark Kerr, for instance, who's a dude who like tore through some early UFC fights and, and was this enormous juggernaut of a man who looked like he would never be beaten. And then things kind of got out of control in his personal life. Uh, he started to get beat up a little bit. Uh, and it turned out like he wasn't as dominant or as uh uh, you know, unbeatable as everyone thought. So leave the Chad Dundas to start out around talking about Conor McGregor and finish it talking about Mark Kerr. Maybe the, the smashing f- machine. Maybe the first Mark Kerr reference on the podcast. Oh, but in your personal life, you're constantly bringing up Mark Kerr. That's true. Every just, goddamn day. Yeah. Well, I got to justify that Mark Kerr poster in my room for a reason. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, like we said at the top of the show, July's not quite done with us yet. This Saturday, live on Big Fox. Don't you think it makes us seem kind of like low-rent marks when we call it Big Fox? It makes you seem that way. All right. Uh, Robert Glenn Lawler is going to take on Matthew Burton Brown in the main event, a fight that could earn one of these guys a title fight, a rematch if it's Robbie Lawler. Uh, if it's Matt Brown, it'll be that chance he's been trying to get ever since he last lost way back on November 19th of 2011. Uh, what are you going to do? Take your shirt off, pop open a couple few Budweiser's, get lathered up for this one, and just let it wash over you? Hopefully. 
Yeah, I'll, if uh, if everything goes according to plan, that's what I'll do. All right, except for maybe the Budweisers part. Uh, but uh, I, this is one of those where. I felt like I went past the point of being like, well, it might, it's so awesome on paper that it's probably going to be a disappointment somehow. And I made my peace with that possibility. And now I'm all the way back to just being super fucking jacked to see this one. Honestly, like, how is this one going to be bad? That's what I was just going to ask you. You bring that up. You say like, and I know I, I hear what you're getting at MMA gods style. Every time we get into one of these fights where we say there's no possible way that it could be bad, it always turns out to be bad. But when you look at the, at the, uh, the respective games of Robbie Lawler and Matt Brown, like, uh, what eventuality could turn this into a boring fight? Like, I don't, bad I don't, stoppage. I don't really, yeah, there you go. That could, it depends on who the third man in the octagon is. Uh, Robbie Lawler slips on the floor backstage and knocks himself unconscious. Hits him, about hits called his, off. Hits his head on some pipes. Yeah. Kevin Randleman yes, style. Right. Jesus, a Mark Kerr and a Kevin Randleman reference <laughs> on the, uh, July 2014 <laughs> edition of the co-main event podcast. But I, don't, I mean, like, I think that this is one of those great fights that not only does it seem like style-wise has the potential to be just absolutely awesome, whether it lasts 30 seconds or 25 minutes, but also relevant for the division. You know, it's a, it's a contender's fight. Uh, and doesn't feel like something where the UFC just found two guys who it knew would agree to have a, you know, stand and bang bro kind of fight, but just guys where that like organically seems to happen for them. You know, that it, like all the stuff that you want, but without any of the manipulation or like questionable reasons for doing stuff, uh, that sometimes makes MMA feel icky. Like this just kind of happened on its own and it is wonderful. And maybe for one night we'll get to just kind of, hang back, watch some dudes damage each other's brains, and just enjoy the hell out of it. <laughs> yeah, two guys that are both like kind of hard to dislike. Uh, I did catch my eye that Matt Brown is training with Ben Askren for this fight, uh, as he said, to try to prepare himself for Robbie Lawler's wrestling. Smokescreen. Smokescreen, dog. Here's what I think. I think that that just reinforces what Matt Brown thinks about himself. Because like if you see these... Uh, interviews with Matt Brown. He's always talking about how there's not a man alive that can beat him, how he's the best welterweight in the world. I think everybody who's not Matt Brown, even though he's won seven fights in a row, is still kind of taking a wait-and-see approach on that. But I think Matt Brown himself believes he's going to go out there, put his hands on Robbie Lawler a couple few times. Robbie Lawler is going to decide he doesn't want that anymore and is going to try to take him down. I think that's a window into the uh, the personal... Uh, like high uh, opinion of himself that Matt Brown brings to the cage. That could be. And, you know, I, I think I can relate to like what Matt Brown has been saying for a while now where he seems like he gets kind of frustrated with people just regarding him as, oh, you're this tough guy, bar bouncer kind of dude uh, who is way overachieving and yay, good for you, go you. And it's kind of, you know, patronizing where he just wants to be like, wait a minute. I'm succeeding because I'm good. Like, right. this is the me now. The other one that lost all those fights, that was just a bad time when I was trying to figure some stuff out. I'm good. Fuck you guys. Appreciate, like, what I can actually do instead of acting like, you know, I, I won some kind of lottery. Uh, I, I can see why he gets frustrated with that. And this and it, this seems like, though, the time where the that has changed a little bit. I don't feel like you hear that narrative as much anymore, especially after that Eric Silva fight. I think now people are ready to give Matt Brown his due daps. Uh, and especially if he goes out there and beats Robbie Lawler, there can be no doubt left then that he is a for real fighter. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, a lot 
lot of that is like a strength of schedule issue for Matt Brown, you know, and I think that that happens to a lot of guys. Yeah, he's won seven fights in a row, but like, you know, Eric Silva's most recent win right before that, Mike Pyle right before that, Jordan Meehan right before that, Mike Swick, uh, you know, it, the, those aren't the, the, the caliber of opponents that is, that are gonna, uh, convince anyone that you're like the number one or number two fighter in the world. I think, you know, to, it happened even to Robbie Lawler, who for a long time was a stalwart in the middleweight division and then cut down to welterweight, started having a lot of success. But it's like, we didn't really know whether or not to, to think that he was for real. You know, he, he knocks out a Josh Koscheck, who's kind of at the end of his rope. Uh, he, he knocks out Bobby Volker then in his, his second appearance after returning to the UFC. And, you know, it wasn't until he goes out there and has a good performance and kind of handles Rory McDonald who uh you know ever since then we've seen the kind of problems that Rory McDonald can can cause for other guys I think it's like not until he faced a guy that we regarded as a real upper echelon welterweight was you know everyone in the sport willing to give even Robbie Lawler his due daps as like a top guy so for Matt Brown I think you're right this is the fight that it, if he goes in there and wins it I think it solves that problem for him what do you say all-time favorite Robbie Lawler moment go Boy, that is a tough question. Uh, I'm going to go with during the brief time that I went to school in Iowa, I went to a extreme challenge show in the parking lot of a heavy machinery rental place. And Pat Militich, Robbie Lawler, and Jens Pulver were all walking around in ball caps, uh, flannel shirts, and bo- they all had like baseball-sized chewing tobacco dips in. That's probably my favorite Robbie Lawler moment. <laughs> well, I didn't didn't see that one coming. Uh, I'm gonna say the fight with Melvin Manhoff in Strike Force. Uh, while maybe not the most significant bout of his career, uh, that was one where you just kind of ha- like he, he goes out there, he gets his legs kicked all to shit in the opening minutes by Manhoff, who just seems like he is gonna wreck Robbie Lawler. Lawler's stuck with his back against the fence, can't really do much, looks like a sitting duck there, and Melvin's gonna pick him off at any moment, and then just fires back one good shot, and next thing you know, Melvin's unconscious, drooling blood on the mat, and Lawler, in celebration, you know, is like half swaggering, but also half limping as he walks around the, or the, the cage, the strike force cage in celebration after that. And that was one where you just had to shake your head and say, Robbie fucking Lawler, man. Yeah. It's inauspicious, but like the, the UFC 47, when he gets knocked out by Nick Diaz, like that, that's a pretty memorable one, unfortunately, because that's like one of those ones where Diaz hits him and it like, it takes a second for the brain to realize that it's been knocked out. Right, Diaz hits him in the face, and like Robbie Lawler stands there for a second, and then falls over. And on his just face. keels over like yeah. a big tree, knocked out. And that was one where back in those days, the UFC was all in on Robbie Lawler. Really, was trying to 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 you know uh, prop him up then as the guy that it's turned out that he is now. And uh, this kid Nick Diaz comes out and and knocks him out. Yeah, a I mean, shocking they were, they were turn of both events. like teenagers at the time, I think. But it was uh, like watching a fight out behind the high school. The the best part about that, if you go back and watch it now, uh, which you can do if you still have your free fight pass trial, uh, is uh, when Nick Diaz is going out there and he's kind of doing his his Nick Diaz stuff, throwing his hands up, kind of taunting Robbie Lawler. And you hear at one point Joe Rogan say something to the effect of like. Oh, Nick Diaz is taunting Robbie Lawler. We didn't expect this. This is, this is unexpected. And it's like, oh, but in the future, in the future, anything else would be unexpected. It will be, it will be expected. What happens in this fight? I kind of expect Robbie Lawler to go out there and just be a little bit more technical, a little bit more on point with the strikes and, uh, probably, 
uh, win by a, by TKO in the first or second round. Although this is one where anything, almost anything, could happen once you get those two guys to run at each other and throw punches. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. I think that uh, we probably see a pretty furious pace in the first round, and but I think it's probably counter striking that carries the day for Robbie Lawler. I do think that uh, he wins a TKO. Um, but you know, I've been surprised by Matt Brown before. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right, well, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I don't know if you saw the uh, Demetrius Johnson appearance on the MMA Hour this past week uh, in the wake of uh, his former opponent, Ali Bagutinov, testing positive for EPO. Uh, he goes on the Ariel Helwani Fortnite, and this is Johnson's quote, I don't care if my opponents are cheating or not. I train my butt off to fight the man who is put in front of me, and whether he's on steroids or not. I want to play on a level playing field, but if they knew about it beforehand and didn't stop it at the same time, I took care of business, no big deal. Uh you got to respect that a little bit because I feel like Demetrius Johnson kind of taking the high road, but also taking the I'm too tough to even care if you're on all kinds of steroids road. Uh, road. Although I'm just saying that's the kind of opinion that seems like it could change with one loss. Seems like some dude comes and takes your title away. All of a sudden you might be a little bit more concerned about what's coursing through his bloodstream. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, uh, you probably missed it. I missed it the first time around because I did not watch the prelims. And then I went back and checked it out and realized that the curtain jerker in Dublin featured an Irish flyweight named Patrick Houlihan. Patrick the Hooligan Houlihan, who also goes by Patty. Oh. Patty Houlihan. Wow. I'm just saying, are we sure that Patty Houlihan is actually a real flyweight fighter in the UFC? And are we sure that he is not just a character in an offensive early 20th century newspaper comic strip with a decidedly anti-Irish bent? Because you tell me you got a fighter, a uh, pale dude uh, with with red hair named Patty the Hooligan Houlihan, and it sounds to me like you're making fun of Irish people. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at the UFC on Fox show this weekend. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So... If your nickname is Patty the Hooligan Hoolahan, you pretty much have to weigh over 350 pounds or under 150. Yes. Like, you either have to be a little tiny guy who goes around knocking everybody 